Say, if you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in John chapter 7. John chapter, chapter 7. Uh, we're in the Gospel of John, and the theme of the Gospel of John is believe. And Jesus is in a hurry here. And as you go through the Gospel of John, as I've said repeatedly, you, you come to the conclusion that John is not talking about neutrality when it comes to Jesus, that Jesus is forcing decision and he's forcing cho- choices. Now, we're coming to a text of Scripture here that there's not a, there's not a sort of a, I don't know how to put this, it's not sort of a, uh, an up way of presenting this passage. This is a very sobering text here. It goes into the genre of one of the confrontations that Jesus is having with, with the religious leaders. And it has to do with confusion and division. In fact, in fact, the title of the message is The Gospel and Division. Now, that might shock some of you here because some of us think that, uh, you know, the gospel is about unifying people and that it's good news. And, it, and all of that's true. But there is a reaction and a response to the gospel that is not always the best. Let's have a word of prayer before we continue. Holy Father, we thank you for your presence and your love and your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your strength. We thank you for your word. And I pray, oh God, as we walk through this passage and we talk about a a side of the gospel that is not very uh, pleasant to talk about, and yet it's so real and it happens all the time, I pray, God, that you'll give us clarity, that you'll give us a sense of how you want us to respond, the kind of people you want us to be, and the gospel heralders and and sharers that you've called us to be. Make your word clear, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Not everybody's in love with Jesus. Not everybody cares about Jesus. In fact, as I stand here today, this is a reality, Uh, July the 8th, 2018, I would say, and this is no exaggeration, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of believers all around the world are undergoing persecution. As I stand here today, there there are those who are in prison, not because they've been uh, 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 rebels against the state or they've they've gone out to to flagrantly uh, disobey laws. They're in prison, they're in jail right now for no other reason than trusting and following Jesus and being, and, and, and being related to Jesus, to talking about Jesus. There are people dead today who have been killed for their faith, and I'm not just talking about 100 or 200 or 300 or 1,000 years ago. Uh, people who have been slaughtered. There are folks in this country who have lost jobs not because, not because they were slackers and not because they violated any stated rules or laws, uh, only because of their commitment to Jesus, their commitment to Christ. And one of the things we need to come to grips with, and we don't talk about this enough here because we live in a, a culture that is, uh, it's a Judeo-Christian environment, uh, and increasingly what I'm saying here is not necessarily so, but there's still enough of a residue of a uh, um, uh, Christian subculture that is sort of kind of acknowledged that we don't experience the same kind of pushback as other people do around the world. And what I've discovered is that, you know, people don't have a, they got a little problem when you mention God, but not such a big deal. 
God is cool, God is okay. You say God, you know, that's fine, the higher power, and if you want to acknowledge that. And, and even atheists, you know, they'll, they'll give you a little verbal nonsense about God, but they won't give you quite the amount of pushback. But what I've discovered is that Jesus is problematic. Jesus is an issue. Jesus is an issue. And people typically have problems with Jesus. And the reason why they have, there's a number of reasons, but I, I think there's some reasons why people have a problem with Jesus. When you talk about God, you can be general and we can acknowledge a higher power and just what is your deity and what is all of this kind of stuff. But when you talk about Jesus, you start getting a little bit specific. And it gets a little ouchy when you talk about Jesus because it gets close to home. And I think, you know, Jesus tends to trigger reaction and hostility in some people. And I think there's reasons for it, and I, I listed three broad reasons. There are many more, but three broad reasons why Jesus triggers hostility among people. Number one is this, is because we don't like to be told that we're wrong. And when you think about it, the whole purpose for Jesus' coming is to solve a problem. And that problem is something that we all have. And it's called sin. He is the solution to our sin. But before we can know him, we've got to face our sin. Well, we don't, like to be, we don't like to be told that we're wrong. We don't like to be told that our choices are wrong. We don't like to be told that our decisions are wrong. We don't like to be told that our lifestyle is wrong. We don't, we don't want that. Give me a, leave me alone. I, you know, I'm an individual. It's, it's my truth. How dare you tell me that my decisions, my lifestyle, what I'm doing is wrong. So we don't like to be told that we're wrong. I think another reason why it is such hostility to Jesus is that, you know, we don't want to give up control. Once you get close to Jesus and you find out what his claims are, you discover that Jesus is Lord. And a relationship with Jesus does not mean that you add Jesus to your philosophy or you add him to your lifestyle or you add him to your choices or he's just another pillar in kind of like your truncated worldview. No, he, he doesn't accept that. When you come to Jesus, he's Lord, meaning he's in control. And we don't, we don't like that. We, we, don't like, we don't like a brand of Christianity that says, I don't call the shots. So people get hostile to Jesus for a third reason. And I think probably if you push me, if I were to redo this message, I might make this a subset of the first reason, but we're not convinced that Jesus is who he said he is. How dare you say he's God in flesh? And by the way, not always, but sometimes we, we use this excuse that we're not convinced that Jesus is who he said he is simply because we don't want him to control us. And if he's God in flesh, I got to deal with that. I got to deal with that. So I just think we need to wake up a little bit here in the United States. I think we need to wake up here in North Atlanta with our sub-Christian subculture and all of this kind of stuff and begin to realize that unless there, the trends change in the way we're going, uh, the reality is that, you know, <laughs> there's going to be increasingly more hostility 
toward those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. And if you're a sure enough follower of Jesus, it's not that we're hostile, it's not that we, we, we cause problems, I'm going to say more about that later on, but intrinsic as part of who we are and part of our relationship with Jesus involved in that is a call for decision and choice. And that bothers people. It disturbs them. Now, in John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52, in context here, we see this amazing reaction, and more on this in a second, to what Jesus says. And this, this whole section here uh, is just overflowing, overflowing with, with, with confusion and division and contention. I mean, there's quite the hubbub that Jesus causes. He just, he, not only does he upset the apple cart, I mean, he, just, he just, just throws things out of kilter. He destroys assumptions. I mean, he throws a monkey wrench into everything. I say, well, isn't Jesus supposed to bring everybody together? Isn't it supposed to be happy and peaceful and this kind of thing? Well, yeah, if you trust him. But Jesus will often collide with our preconceived notions about him, about life, and about what we want to believe. And so here we have um, in this section that these religious leaders, particularly some of the crowd, um, couldn't see and appreciate who Jesus is because they were blinded by their assumptions. They were blinded by their choices. They were blinded by their preconceived notions. In fact, they were confused and divided. And, and so this contention here displays itself along these following lines. And I've got six observations, six ways, six sort of a progressive movement in this text. The very first thing that um, this contention uh, sort of is derived from, number one, is the assertion of Jesus' authority. Now, that's not mentioned specifically in verses 40 through 52, but it is the reason for this. It's in the context itself. If you were here last week, we looked at those verses uh, before that, verses 37 through 39, where Jesus has the audacity, the startling audacity, to stand up at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, stands up and shouts out to thousands of people who are there in Jerusalem and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. He who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You know what, they, they got what he said, you know what he's saying? You know what he's saying? That this feast of booths is about me. It's about me. There's no doubt that Jesus was declaring that he was God in flesh. Now, you've you got to understand this. There are thousands of people there. there. The religious leaders are there. And Jesus stands up in their minds and hijacks their, their feast. It says it's all about him. So you have this overt declaration of Jesus' authority. He wasn't indirect. He didn't use euphemisms. 
He was clear, specific, and commanding. Wow. So what did he do with this? What did he do with this? What did he do with this declaration? These people are standing there and they're... I I just... The the, the disadvantage of history is familiarity. I mean, we're, we're just so familiar with this stuff. But can you imagine standing there? For centuries you celebrated this feast of bulls and it was uh, the ritual and the priest going to the pool of Siloam with the golden pitcher and pouring the water out and, and, and uh, you lived in these lean-tos are reminding you of the 40 years wandering in the wilderness and the promised land and how God took care of you and all of a sudden Jesus stands up and says, this ain't about that, it's about me. <laughs> Well, number two, and this is where we get into the movement of this passage, based upon this incredible assertion of Jesus' authority, um, they began to question his identity. I mean, the the buzz is just going all over the place. He just said, I mean, this is about me. I mean, uh, anybody believes in me. If you come to me uh, and you drink from me out of your innermost beings, you flow rivers of living water. What in the world is he talking about? Verse 40 says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some uh, some said, "Is is, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? You get the confusion here? There are three groups here. The first group says that, no, this is the prophet. The prophet, what, what do you mean by that? This is the prophet. What, 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 what do you mean by that? I, I think, I think that, uh, uh, follow me here, connect all of this. Everybody knew about him feeding the 5,000. And the hubbub there, that amounted to 20,000, this word came out. Jesus slides into the, to the feast, and he makes this incredible statement. So when he says the prophet, I think because he fed the 5,000, they concluded that he was a prophet that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. And I think there's a little inference here. Just, just as God, God fed the children of Israel with manna in, res, in response to Moses' prayer and dependence upon God, and these people are thinking, well, you know, manna is sort of similar to what Jesus did in, in his declaration here. Well, maybe he's the prophet. Then there's another group that says, no, no, he's, uh, maybe he's the Messiah, the Christ. That's what the second part uh, of verse, uh, uh, first part of verse one, uh, 41 says, others said, this is the Christ. And I happen to believe that they, they, uh, they thought rightly so, that he was the Messiah. No question about it. Maybe this group, yeah, yeah, we, we had seen the miracles. We listened to him. We paid attention to what he said. It's consistent and it strikes it in my heart. I believe that he's the Messiah. Well, then you have this third group. This third group doubts it. Wait, 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 wait. How could a Messiah come from Galilee? It's supposed to be from the lineage of David. There's no prophet come from Galilee. 
Come on, man. What, what is this all about? How can, how can, how, how, how he, he, he doesn't, he doesn't come from Jerusalem. And I think these folks were probably from the area in and around Jerusalem. And of course, Jerusalem represented the holy city, represented the, uh, you know, this is, this is, this is the place where that's the focal point of, of, of redemptive history right here in Jerusalem. The throne of David right here. Of course, Messiah, Messiah would come from Jerusalem. He would come right here. And because Jesus' headquarters, which was true, because Jesus' headquarters was in Galilee, they identify him as a Galilean. And they were saying he's, he's from the wrong area to be the Messiah. Kidding me? Actually, if they had done their homework and poked around, he was in the lineage of David. He was born in Bethlehem. He fulfilled all that prophecy. They were hijacking an assumption. Say, no, 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 he's not the, you know. But they missed him. Sort of breaks your heart because this is a fulfillment of what John said in John chapter 1 in the prologue in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, isn't it? And the world was made by him, yet the world knew him not. And it says here, he says in verse 11, and Jesus came to his own, yet his very own received him not. You know, this applies to us today. Can you imagine the great tragedy of it all is to spend one's whole life rejecting Jesus only to discover at the end of the road you rejected the only one who could save you. If that is not motivation to share the gospel, I don't know what is. And here you have this great irony. They refused to believe who he was. I happen to believe it's not that they couldn't believe. I think they just refused to believe. So thirdly, I guess that I've said it, there's this heightening of confusion and division. Verses 43 and 44 so there was a, vision, a division among the people over him. And some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. <laughs> you know, just as people were divided back then, we can expect a similar reaction because of our commitment to Christ. I just think, you know, uh, we just need to grow up. We can expect this similar reaction when, 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 when we give our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. And I know that there's a little bit of cushion in our culture because of the residue of, of the Christian influence and, and Judeo-Christian effort, uh, 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 heritage, but that's breaking up. That is really breaking up. You can go to certain regions of the country where it is broken. 
And uh, there's a little, we, we still got a little Bible Beltish stuff in us down here. There's a little, a little Bible Beltish stuff in here, a little, little respect for it. But you go to the Pacific Northwest, you go to many parts in the Northeast, you go to many, some parts in the Midwest right now, all this stuff is jacked. It's just breaking up. It's breaking up. And, uh, uh, they, 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 you know, people will come after you aggressively because you are a follower of the Lord Jesus. There is division. But I also want to, want to say that, and I'm going to come back to this at the end of the message, that, that they're inherent in Christianity, inherent, inherent, inherent in being a follower of Christ. I'm going to say something that is counterintuitive. You don't, you, you're not going to believe what. Inherent in being a follower of Christ means of necessity that there's division. Hold your finger there and go back over to Matthew chapter, chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 34. Matthew 10, beginning at verse 34. Listen to these words of Jesus. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What Jesus is saying here is that inherent in a commitment to me is choice. It is decision. And you have no control over how people will respond to the choice and decision that you make. And if you love me more, it threatens those that are close to you. Now, don't, now I don't, don't, don't read more into this than what is being said. Now, he's not suggesting that we become a bunch of obnoxious, condescending, arrogant, in-your-face, mean-spirited Christians. I've met a number of those folks. He's not suggesting that. He's not suggesting that we go around beating people up and, and, and judging folks and looking down our self-righteous noses at people. This is not what he's talking about. However, don't back away from the reality that what he is talking about is once you make a decision to surrender your heart and life to Jesus Christ, Inherent in that is opposition. You say, well, what is that? Well, well, see, the gospel makes us choose, and in so doing, causes division. There's a price to be paid to follow Christ. And I think we just need to embrace that. Again, make sure you're not being obnoxious. Make sure we're not being condescending. Make sure that we're not being the angry Christian and beating people up. But at the same time, you got to embrace the reality that once you say yes to Jesus and your life starts changing and you love him more, that serves as a mirror that reflects the condition of other people's hearts and lives who may be close to you. Their influence on you begins to waver because they're no longer the most important factors in your life. Jesus is more important. 
and your allegiance is to him. And that allegiance threatens them. And unless they respond to Jesus, there can be division. So they're divided here in this passage, in this narrative, they're divided because Jesus makes a declaration, draws a line in the sand. He said, I didn't come so you might like me. I didn't come so you say, oh, Jesus is a good boy. I, I didn't come for any of that. I didn't come to win your popularity context. I came to change your life. I came to, for you to make a decision, and I came for you to be my representative in this world. Guess what? If you decide to do that, not everybody's going to line up to kiss you. This is the reason why I think believers here in the West, particularly in the Bible Belt, need to get out of this country and go to some other places around the world to catch the reality of the context of true Christianity. That's what it's all about. Well, it's interesting here, verse 44, they're upset with Jesus and they wanted to arrest him. <laughs> but notice this line, but no one laid hands on him. Don't, don't skip over that. Uh, no one laid hands on him. You see, uh, they could not do anything to Jesus without divine permission. That's the point. Be very careful when you talk about the death of Christ and about how people killed him and, and the Romans and the Jews and all of that. Be very careful that you don't assign more power and authority to them than they deserve. No, no, no. Uh, God used the Romans and God used the religious leaders as a part of his plan for his, their, his son's crucifixion. But God sent his son to Calvary. He was crucified before the foundation that, that it was determined by God. God sent him to his death, the means of his death, and the timing of his death was according to God's plan. It would not play, take place until God said so. And that's the import of these words, and no one laid hands on him. Why? Because it wasn't his time yet. It just wasn't his time yet. And even in this, we see the power of our Savior. It's as if he says, you're not going to do anything to me until it's the time. Until it's the time. So now things begin to boil here. Can you feel it as you, as you read through the narrative? Can you feel that it's, it's starting to, you know, these religious leaders, they, they, they're like, they're, they are simmering. I mean, they, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is not good. This is not good. You, you come in here, you take over the feast, and you make this declaration that, that, that you are God and the feast is all about you. You come here messing up our thing, man. Uh, these people were responding to us, and if they weren't responding to us, at least they were significantly threatened by us and afraid of us that they stayed in their place. And now you're pulling the lid off all this stuff. What's going on here? And so you, hear, you, you see this, well, verses 45 to 49 is a full display of threat and defensiveness. Look at verses 45 and 46. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? 
The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. What is this all about? Well, an arrest warrant had been issued for Jesus. They, they were supposed to arrest him. Where do you get this from? Look back up at verse 32. Verse 32 says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. These officers were sent by the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the, this, the official hierarchy of the Pharisees. They were, they were sent to them to arrest Jesus. We got to stop him. We got to stop him. And so now they're ticked. They say, you, you didn't do this. You, you let him get by. He shows up at the feast and he makes this declaration. And all these people, man, uh, how come you didn't arrest him? Well, they didn't arrest him because they were blown away by the power and authority of his words. They answered the official, yeah, I know you sent us over here. Yeah, we got the arrest warrant and all this stuff. We were supposed to bring him in. But they said, no one ever spoke like this man. In other words, have you listened to him? I mean, have you really heard what he said? Have you really heard what he said? Have you heard what he said and how he said it? Perhaps there's someone here today who's not a follower of Christ. And maybe you've been getting pushed back and this kind of thing or whatever. Uh, and I, but I want to commend you for being here. I didn't give too much pushback as you wouldn't be here. But I would just challenge you. Have you really, have you really heard? Not, 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 what, not what some of his crazy followers and that kind of thing have said. Not the caricatures of Christianity that you read about. But have you really heard and listened for yourself what Jesus said? I say this to unbelievers a lot, you know, who want to give a, a, a lot of arguments about Christianity, about what it's supposed to be and this kind of thing. I, I just say, hey, can I ask you to do something? Will you, will you sit down and read the Gospel of John all the way through? Will you, will you just listen to what he said? Will you read what he declares himself to be? And that's, that's what he's saying. He said, I, I know you're going, you ticked at me, you probably throw us in jail. I ain't arresting him. Have you heard what he said? Sometimes we're so defensive. We, we, we want to protect our way of thinking, our way of life. You know, some of the most close people I've ever run into in my life, paradoxically, have been those who have bragged about how open they are. Are you really open? Are we listening? Are we listening? Now, Verses 47 through 49, yeah, these religious leaders, they get really, really upset here. Now, it's like, oh, brother, we sent you to arrest the dude. Now you're talking as if you want to jump over, over on, on his side. Uh, and then they just, just, they just go off. Um, verse 47 says, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? 
Come on, man. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I mean, you hear what they're saying? The, the point of these questions that they, they throw back at these officers, they're supposed to bring them in, and now they're talking nonsense. No one ever spoke like this man. And they say, basically, how can anybody who's informed and theologically astute be deceived by this imposter? That's what these religious leaders are saying. Not you too. Come on, man. You got better sense than that. Your IQ's higher than that. I thought you were intelligent. You see, they start sliding into insults here. You, you'd know better than this. And, and, and not only that, not only that, and what are you, I hope you're not listening to these common people. Come on, these common people, you know what? They're cursed. You know, we want to trust in what we want and what we think rather than respond to the evidence. And that's what's going on here. Their minds are made up. They don't want to respond to Jesus. But you know, the the power of the gospel, ironically, uh, I don't want to go too much into this, ironically, ironically, a number of these religious leaders did become followers of Christ. Even the hierarchy. Look at, later on, look at John chapter 12, verse 42, and then over in chapter 19, verses 38 to 39. If you weigh the evidence, stop being so defensive. Listen to what he said. Listen to who he claims to be. Open your heart and your mind. Did you hear what this man said? Now, number five, Nicodemus was compelled to defend Jesus. Uh, There's some debate as to whether or not Nicodemus was a follower of Jesus at this point. I believe he was. I actually believe, although it doesn't come explicitly and say this, but I actually believe, oh, in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and Nicodemus was a member, was probably a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, he was a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders. Nicodemus was not, he, didn't, he did not lack uh, intellectual horsepower. Well, he comes, comes to Jesus at night. So now later on, Nicodemus is still a part of the group, and I think quietly we know that from over in John 19 that Nicodemus kept his conversion quiet. But yet he steps forward. I really believe that in in so many words, Nicodemus is defending Jesus. Notice what he says here. Verse 50 says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and was one of them, said to them, does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? I think Nicodemus... Spin a chip. Say, no, no, you, you, hold, hold up, guys. I'm one of you. Uh, I don't know, you, you know, in so many words, I'm as smart as you are, if not smarter. I know the law just as well as you do, if not better. Now, let me ask you a question. 
Does our law, does it condemn somebody before they hear them and listen to them? And behind all of that, obviously, we know is that Jesus, that Nicodemus said, yeah, I, what are you saying? Yeah, I, I went to him by night. I heard him and I listened to him. He ain't nuts. And I'm one of his followers. You want to listen? See, I think, I think what's taking place here, and I, I don't want to make too much of this, is that these religious leaders had gotten so um, enamored by their religious insights and brilliance and their intellectualism and wisdom that their pride would not allow them to be open. That's the reason why, you know, God has this habit. In 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, God has this habit. God has this habit of not going to the, to the wise in the world's eyes and the knowledgeable in the world's eyes, but going to the foolish the ignorant, the open. Now, I, want, I need to balance what I just said there. I am not suggesting in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, not many wise and not many, you know, uh, intelligent, knowledgeable have been called. Uh, I, that is not to be taken that Paul is putting down intellectualism. He is not putting that down. It's not, it's not to be taken that somehow or another Paul says you've got to blow your brains out in order to become a follower of Jesus. That's not what he's saying there. I think what he's saying in its broader context is that you cannot trust in your mind to be the deliverer of your soul. There are intellectual reasons for Christianity, by the way. Christianity is not fragile. It's not intellectually fragile. There, there, there are intellectual, but, but, but and at the end of the day, at the end of the day, your brilliance is not going to, you're, you're never going to argue your way into, in, in, into heaven. It's a matter of faith and repentance. And sometimes people, people who do not have all that clutter in their heads understand it more directly and clearly and more quickly from their hearts. And the problem that these religious leaders have is a problem that so many people have in our society today. That they pretend to have an open head, but they have a hardened heart. They fight the battle up here with a closed heart. But Nicodemus got it. His mind has been open, the questions have been answered. And here he is stepping up to defend, defend in my mind, his, his Savior. Now, this Nicodemus, however, in their minds, because they didn't have an open heart, they didn't have an open mind, they were threatened by Jesus, they're losing control all over the place, all these thousands of people are following Jesus, the man just stands up at the Feast of Booths and says it's all about him, there's this uproar, even some of these people are now declaring that a prophet or that he's the messiah and now we got nicodemus standing up here saying hey look we need to listen to him verse 52 or 51 is is really 
I'm 52. It's really a declaration. And the declaration is this. Look. Jesus is beneath our expectations. No matter what you say. Now notice how they respond to Nicodemus. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, (laughs) they knew good and well that Nicodemus was not from Galilee. They're being sarcastic. I mean, it's almost as if they're so angry, they're saying, you know, come on, Nicodemus, how stupid is that? Really? Honestly? You know, they, they say this out of frustration. They, they seemingly cannot stop the teachings and activities of Jesus, and they're frustrated. And even Nicodemus is questioning their reasoning process and their fairness. Come on, man. In so many words, they're saying, oh, well, you're, you're supposed to be on our team. So they sarcastically respond to Nicodemus because they're too worked up to listen to reason. And by the way, they resorted to uh, an old debate technique. This goes on today. This is an old debate technique. You've seen it. You've seen it in presidential debates. You've seen it in camp. You've seen it take place. There's an old debate technique. In, In other words, when you can't answer a question, you attack and insult the speaker. This has, been, this has been going on for centuries. And they couldn't answer the question, so they're so angry. What do they do? They, they attack and they insult Nicodemus. Are you in Galilee too? President, oh, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean? What do you mean by that, Nicodemus? Will you tell us more? No, they're angry. They're upset. They said, no, 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 no it's, it's all over. It's all over. Are we too defensive? Are we so threatened and defensive that we can't embrace and hear and listen to the truth? That almost borders on insanity. Well, let me land the plane by making four suggestions to us. Four suggestions. The first one has to do with us as believers and Christians, how we think about ourselves. I really believe that we need to be careful that we are not the cause of people's negative reaction to our Savior. Be careful of getting backdoored in the name of, in the name of righteous indignation. Be careful in getting backdoored into some type of judgmental attitude and coming across as angry, dismissive, arrogant Christians. I think we need to be careful about attacking unbelievers. 
Now, we need to stand for what's right. Don't get me wrong. And there's a time to fight for the truth. But we should not be one big fight looking for an opportunity. We should, we should be loving followers of Jesus who stand up to clarify principle and truth and understand that lost people act like lost people, people who are not followers of Jesus, people who are not believers, people who have not responded to him, they're going to sin, they're going to do what's wrong. Listen, you wouldn't get upset if a blind man stepped on your foot. And so I think we need to be very careful, and I, I see this, I see this. Be careful, careful, careful. I see it on social media with believers, I see it on, be careful of lobbing grenades out there and blowing people up, and you, what you're doing is that we, we're just destroying opportunities to love them and engage them. Now again, I'm not saying that we should back up where something is sinful and something is wrong, but don't, don't dare act as if we're not capable of doing those same things. And the other thing, now having said that, but also embrace the reality, hear me on this, hear me on this, because some people are saying like this right now, what I just said, yeah, 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 I can't stand judgmental Christians, but don't go to the other extreme. Understand, as believers, we carry with us both a scent and a smell. What do you mean by that? 2 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that every believer carries in them both a scent and a smell. Let me explain the text there. Paul is talking about a Christian's triumph in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And he uses this imagery of, of Romans who have gone out to war and they're coming back to Rome after winning this, this, these great battles. And they come into the city of Rome. And my research indicates as they would come into the army, would come back into the city of Rome, these pagan temples would, would have their doors open wide. And, and on the altars of these pagan temples would be this incense that was burning. And, and the smell would come out of these temples. And, and the army would be a mile or two miles away. And they start smelling this. <sighs> Now, if you're a part of that conquering army, that was a sweet scent of home, of victory. However, if you were one of the slaves, one of the, one of the people who have been captured, one of the captives coming back, several hundred, maybe even a thousand or so, and you smelt that. That was a stench of embalming fluid. So when Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that we have in us an aroma, get this, for those who are being saved, it is sweet. But for those who are being lost, he says in the text, it smells like death. And as followers of Jesus, we have that in us. For those who want to respond to our Savior, it is a sweet aroma. But hear me. You haven't done anything wrong necessarily if somebody starts persecuting you. Why? Because they don't want to change. And that aroma coming out of you smells like a sewer that's backed up to them. And there's nothing you can do about that. Don't apologize for it. 
It is just the nature of who we are. And that's the nature of the gospel that we preach. But my only warning is this. Make sure that the message is, a, is, is that which causes division and not just obnoxious behavior. So that would be the very first thing that I would suggest to us. Watch our tone, watch our attitude. Don't pick fights. But clarify the truth. And don't back away from what's right. The second suggestion I would say is this. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't allow your prejudices or superficial evaluations to blind you to the truth. Listen, open, evaluate it. Thirdly, I would say, don't ignore the evidence. I think this is what those officers said. They went out to arrest him, but then they said, hold, hold, hold up. Hold up, wait, wait, wait. He ain't crazy. Don't ignore the evidence. What do you mean? Well, for example, the resurrection. If we have honest intellectual questions, well, there are answers. The resurrection, or fulfilled prophecy. Or change lives. Not everybody says they have followed Jesus Christ as a lunatic or crazy or nuts. How do you explain this stuff, these people, we, we, we come to Jesus and we had addictions and attitude issues and problems and this kind of thing. You know, this wasn't just better behavioral patterns. People that you know and love have been transformed by the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And then what about, I know this sounds subjective, but what about, what about the longings in your own heart? The longing to get rid of guilt, the desire to be a better person. Where does that come from? I would suggest Jesus is what you long for and nothing else will satisfy you. And then fourthly, uh, just a very practical thing, we have a class here. Actually meets this hour, so you have to go to worship the first hour. But we've got a class here entitled Ask Your Question. Christianity has never been afraid ever been afraid of any question whatsoever. We're not fragile. And by the way, any group of people that refuses to respond to hard questions or shut you down, you probably need to walk away from those folks because that has cult written all over it. But biblical Christianity is, ask your question. God is not fragile. He loves us. And he came to seek and to save that which was lost.
But be encouraged, my, my brothers and sisters. As we sit here today, people all around the world are being persecuted for not having done anything wrong other than loving and following Jesus. And Jesus said, if it happened to me, it's going to happen to you. That's the nature of our message. Let's stand together. If you're here today and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, you can become one right now. It is so simple. It is so simple. Jesus has made it simple and made it clear. All you have to do is say in your heart and mind, Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross in my place and for my sin. You rose again on the third day. And I turn from my sin. And I trust you as my Savior and Lord. If you do that and believe that in your heart and mind, Jesus Christ is living in your life. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, let's not be ashamed of him. Let's not be ashamed to boldly speak of him and to live for him. But do it from a heart of love and of gratitude and of thanksgiving that we too are beggars who have found bread and just want to share it with the lost world. There'll be Stephen ministers and others up front, staff members, elders in this service. If you have any prayer needs whatsoever, I'd love to pray for you. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your word. And Lord, um, one of the sobering realities is as we go through passages like this, we're struck with the realization that it's not up to us to pick and choose what kind of Christianity we want to live. That really is not our call. There are certain things that's just inherent in being a follower of Jesus, if we're going to be faithful, that goes with the territory. But Father, you've promised to never leave us or forsake us, and you're with us. And I do pray right now for those Christians, those believers who in many parts of the world right now, right at this very moment, who are under house arrest, some are locked up, others have lost their jobs. Um, Lord, all kinds of persecution. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will meet them where they are, that they will know the joy of the Lord in the midst of the pressure and the pain, and that your gospel would advance even more because of their faithful witness and for taking a stand for you. Thank you for the model of our Savior. Thank you, O oh God, for the model of Nicodemus, who didn't shrink back. Help us, we pray. Dismiss us from this place, but may we walk in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.